0: My name is Neve Callaghan, I'm a partner here in Mason, Hayes & Curran and I head up our corporate charities team. You're all very very welcome, it's lovely to see so many familiar faces in the room of our clients and friends and wonderful to see lots of new faces too because as you know we are co-hosting this event with our friends in The Wheel so to the members of The Wheel who maybe haven't been in Mason Hayes before you're very very welcome. The topic for discussion today Absolutely rolls off the tongue, so much so that I have to read it myself. The European Union, Anti-Money Laundering, Beneficial Ownership of Corporate Entities Regulations 2019. Lovely. Um, But the good news is that we have three wonderful speakers for you today who are absolutely experts in their field and not only will they tell you what that piece of law is about but more importantly they'll tell you why it's relevant to you because you are all here because you are involved in charities and charities that are companies and it's for that reason specifically that you're here. So, when you're leaving here, we're hoping that in that role, you will know everything that you need to know about it, or enough that you can go back to your charity and tell them, this is what we have to do. I'm not going to say any more about it, other than introduce our speakers to you. Our first speaker is Tony Ward, Um, Tony is the Director of Finance with The Wheel, and Tony will speak for about five or ten minutes, introducing the subject to charities. Then we have our own Alice Murphy, Alice will be known to many of you and for those of you who don't know we're very happy that Alice was recently appointed partner Um, so it's great news for Alice and great news for all of us because Alice works in our team in the corporate charities team in Mason Hayes. And then we're very, very grateful to be joined by Maureen O'Sullivan. As all of you know, Maureen is the Registrar of Companies in Ireland. So together with her team, Maureen and her colleagues are absolutely at the coalface of introducing the piece of law that we're going to be talking about here. So Tony will speak for about 10 minutes and then both Alice and Maureen will speak for about 20 minutes each, um, which will bring us to about 920 and then I'll come back up and join you here and we'll do some questions and answers. So if you have any questions during the speeches, I would ask maybe that you take a note of them and we'll deal with them at the end and we'd be delighted to do that. So we're going to close by 9.45 at the very latest um, and that's it. So without further ado, Tony's going to speak from his seat and it's up to the ladies how they'd like to move around. Thank you.
1: So... um Thank you, Neve. For logistical reasons and the power of technology, I've been—I will stand up, but I'll stay at my seat rather than making my way over to the podium. Um, I think I can probably explain, Neve, why uh, you had an overflow of people, even though ordinarily a 50% drop-off. Because um, it's a very nice place to come to, I have to say, for coffee <laughs> and uh, coffee and croissants on croissants on a Wednesday morning. So um, certainly, the members of the wheel uh, take note. Uh, even though we do supply coffee and pastries, uh, the standard may have increased slightly as a result of this morning. (laughs) But um, I I want to welcome you uh, along um, and thank Mason, Hayes and Kern for hosting uh, this morning's event. I also think, Neve, that you said in your introduction that we have three, I think you used the word, expert speakers. Well, I'm not actually one of those. Um, so I may not take the 10 minutes uh, at all, but Alice and Maureen will, will fill you in in a lot more useful detail, I think. But what I do want to say is, um, just in terms of context, uh, and I, I know the first time I came across beneficial ownership, I thought sort of went, what now? Uh, beneficial what now? Um, so it, it came sort of out of left field a little bit. Um, So just to put it in a a bit of context, it it comes from um, a series of European directives on anti-money laundering, uh, and there's actually a unit in the Department of Finance here in Ireland called the AML unit. So, um, you know, it it, it didn't come from left field, I guess, uh, uh, for everyone. And just again to put it in context, the anti-money laundering legislation, and I I think that this um, uh, statutory instrument uh, is is in, uh, bringing in to pass uh, AML 5, so have been, there have been four before. And they have done things in the past, like for example, I remember when I opened my first bank account, I just walked into the bank and, uh, you know, I'm not even sure if I signed a bit of paper and I walked out the, the holder of a bank account. You, you can't do that anymore. So some of these predecessor um, AML uh, regulations have done things like, you know, proof of identity, uh, having to prove who you are, and, and this whole thing about, um, you know, the the authenticity, I guess, uh, of individuals um, in terms of their financial transactions. So I think that all makes sense to us. Um, the beneficial ownership, um, again, as I say, it came a little bit out of left field, and um, from a charity point of view, and the wheel represent, you know, a lot of charities as well as community and voluntary groups. Um, it, it, and I'm just saying this now, um, uh, 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 not, not uh, because we've moved on from this, but it, it does feel like an, another thing you have to comply with. And there've been a lot of things over the last four or five years that have come to pass, all in their individual way, uh, necessary, I guess, all in their individual way, makes sense, but. There is definitely a feeling, especially amongst the mid-size and smaller charities, and we hear this all the time at the wheel, that uh, there's now uh, what we call a burden of compliance. So I just want to say that we um, acknowledge that this may be another thing that adds to the burden of compliance. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, and I should also say that we we did contact this AML unit in the Department of Finance back in 2017, and actually had a meeting with them, and we're talking about you know, the difference between charity companies versus other companies in the private sector. So we have made efforts uh, to engage with the Department of Finance um, and we will continue to do that actually. Uh, but the subject uh, matter of today is that I guess on this particular occasion that the, the ship has left the port in terms of, you know, the fact that charity companies are going to have to comply with these regulations like other companies have to. Um, I have to say we've had a a meeting um, uh, with Maureen O'Sullivan, who's here this morning, and and Maureen has been extremely helpful uh, and extremely understanding, and, um, you know, I think we recognise the fact that she has to put in place what has come down the track. So um, I think it will be possible uh, for organisations to comply with this. It will be necessary for organisations to comply with it. Um, So we are Setting our, our stall this morning in in trying to help organizations do that and understand what they have to do and why they have to do it and how they can do it while bearing in mind that you know um, there, the, the door to the anti-money laundering unit in the Department of Finance is still open and we will sort of jam our foot into that door from time to time so to make sure that um, you know charities who are companies are, who are, to my mind, quite different. Um, you know, the things just don't get carried away in a particular direction that doesn't make sense. And the last thing I will say is, you know, the reason why when I saw it initially that it didn't make sense was because by virtue of being a charity now under the remit of the charity's regulator, uh, the benefic- you can't have a beneficial owner. Um, so if you were to file your constitution with the charity's regulator and put in the words beneficial owner, I think they would send it back to you and say you can just change those words around because you know th- it is very clear from charities legislation that um, you know the beneficial the, p- the beneficiaries uh, in charities are are the service users are the people that the charity has been set up to serve so their words I suppose that don't sit well with charities um, however we are who we are in relation to it and I think uh, and I'm hopeful that over the next five months when the window of, of filing is open from the 22nd of June to the 22nd of November, we'll be able to you know, put that message clearly out there while um, filing and meeting the, the, the regulatory requirements, put the message out there that um, you know, charities are slightly different because they are slightly different. So um, I'm happy to answer questions if any arise at the end, but I will now hand you over to Alice from Mason, Hayes & Kern.
2: Good morning, everybody. So uh, it's wonderful to see so many of you here. Thank you very much for, for getting up and making your way to MHC this morning. Um, what I'm going to do over the next 20 minutes or so is break down what Tony has said, um, break down the regulations for you. Uh, there is a piece of Irish legislation in force at the moment, um, despite you know any uncertainties or any Uh, slight uh, square pegs and round holes as Tony has alluded to in relation to charities and what we all understand beneficial ownership to be. Um, the, the, The legislation has come in and is in force and so the objective of my talk in the next 20 minutes or so is going to be to explain that to you, to explain what it is, how you can all go about as charities in a charities compliant manner complying with this new legislation. So the new regulations, Neve has given you the long name, I'm not going to call uh, call that all out again, the Beneficial Ownership Regulations, or just the Regulations as I'll call them, have come into force since the 22nd of March this year. They are divided into parts one and two, which uh, require you all as charitable companies to have an internal Beneficial Ownership Register. That's a document that you hold yourselves internally at your office, and then part three Which establishes a central register that is an external register held in the CRO. uh, And Maureen is going to explain in more detail in her provision, uh, in her part of the talk, what uh, the central register pertains to. So, in the part one and part two, the internal register, what I'll cover is where these regulations came from, why they were brought into force. What obligations apply to charities which are limited companies, be they companies limited by guarantee or other types of companies. And how the charities can best get to grips with the core definitions and obligations, acknowledging that nothing in these regulations was written with charities in mind. And as I say, Maureen then will do the external piece. So where did it all come from? As Tony has alluded to, it came from the much maligned institution, the EU, that we uh, hear so much about these days. Um, And the regulations have come in to implement the fourth anti-money laundering directive. And it's worth taking a moment, I think, to labour that particular piece of information. There are two objectives to the money laundering legislation, to combat money laundering itself and to combat terrorist financing, both pretty serious endeavours, I think we probably all agree. So the objective is not to regulate charities. Charities were nowhere in the minds of the authors of this legislation. and Tony has made that point very clearly in his introduction. But I think it's just worth taking a moment to bed it down so that you're not saying to yourselves, but why, it doesn't make any sense for us. It wasn't written for us. It was written for two purposes. And the legislature in their wisdom have taken the view that in order to achieve those purposes, charities have to comply as well if they are companies. Pardon me. So recital 14 that you can see on your screen, the need for accurate and up-to-date information on the beneficial owner is a key factor in tracing criminals who might otherwise hide their identities. So that is where this is all coming from. Recital 16, timely access to information on a, a company's beneficial owners should be available in a central register. That's somewhere external from the company itself so as not to tip off uh, anyone in advance. So as I'll come to, for the vast, vast majority of Irish companies, charities or otherwise, who are not financing criminals, this new legislation is an added compliance obligation, which is of no direct relevance to them. Uh, it, it, in our case, it, you know, it, the wholly benevolent activities, but also those vast majority of compliant corporate entities whose activities are profit-making. This is just a quick background to say that originally uh, there was a, a, a regulation of 2016. Uh, that was where we first in Ireland saw this obligation to hold information on your beneficial ownership. And this obligation is still a current live obligation, albeit that we now have new regulations. So the parts one and parts two definitions and interpretation. The key to sort of getting this legal requirement and leaving here this morning, which is what we all would like for you with a clear understanding of what do I have to do is to understand the definitions um, and the interpretation section. So I'm going to go through those in some detail now. So I could have called this slide, who do the new rules apply to? Uh, And that's what you all have come here this morning to hear. Are you in or are you out? Is there any reason that these obligations might not apply to you? And the answer is that the regulations apply if your charity falls in the definition of a relevant entity. And a relevant entity is every corporate or other legal entity incorporated in Ireland. So the most relevant point to make on this definition is that the definition applies to companies limited by guarantee. Now a small number of you in the audience have charities which are established as DACs. Um, or as share companies, and it also applies to those. So limited by shares, DACs, and CLGs, all fall within this definition. The definition doesn't have an exemption to say, but if you're charitable, you're all right. Uh, It has two small exemptions, which are in the parenthesis on the slide, neither of which are of any relevance to the audience we have here today. So the conclusion from this side is that the Beneficial Ownership Regulations do apply to charitable companies. The next key definition, since your charity, assuming that it is a company, falls in the scope of the legislation, uh, relates to beneficial ownership, a really odd concept when we think of charities. So bear with me while I explain to you what the rules actually say a beneficial owner is. It's a lot wider than what we would have understood. <coughs> so acknowledging the, the anomaly for charities, um, As I said at the outset, it's a piece of Irish legislation that's in force um, and we're going to make the best of a definition which wasn't written for us to parse it through and break it down so that we understand and so that you get it right, frankly, because you need to understand the definition in order to put the right people on, on your beneficial ownership register. So it's a natural person, that's a human being, who ultimately owns or controls your company through direct or indirect ownership of a sufficient percentage of either shares or of voting rights or of an ownership interest. So if CLGs had shares, it would be a lot easier for us to work out, because percentage shareholding is what all the corporates are doing in assessing who their beneficial owners are. And if they're, let us say, the likes of a a large technology company anywhere around this neck of the woods, they will be very clearly able to see what percentages their shareholders have. And does any shareholder have more than a quarter? And what the regulations say is that more than a quarter, more than 25%, is a sufficient percentage. (coughs) So what do we do to interpret this for charities? A very small number of you, there are a couple here I believe this morning, have shares, and therefore you, you simply look at your percentage shareholding. Most of you. Thanks, Need. Most of you don't have shares um, and wouldn't understand your members, that's the company limited by guarantee members, as being in any way uh, in an owner, a beneficial ownership uh, space. Nevertheless, uh, we have to take the 25% indicator that we're given in the regulations as our starting point. So all of you with companies limited by guarantee you do have members of your company limited by guarantee. And you have to look at how many members you have. And in assessing if those members are in control, you have to ask yourself, if uh, a matter comes before the company which the members have to decide on, a classic example that many of you have been through with the new Companies Act has been amending your memorandum and articles of association. Who did you ask to sign the resolution? You asked your members to sign that resolution or you called your members together in an AGM and an EGM, and they exercised their control. So we believe that that definition of control um, does apply to the members of a company limited by guarantee, and so what your assessment uh, is internally in putting together your register is to decide how many of those members are there, and do they each individually have more than the 25 percent. So that can only happen, even with my very poor mathematics, if there are uh, three or less of them. So if you are in a position where your company limited by guarantee has three members or fewer, then those three members will be classified as beneficial owners under these uh, regulations. The definition doesn't take account of the fact that the ownership interest is exercised strictly for the charitable purpose. And that is the point that Tony really hit on earlier, that. Many of us would have come to these regulations on day one saying, but that's meaningless. There's no such thing as beneficial ownership for charities. So I suppose as the legal advisors, Neve and I and the team have looked very closely to see, well, how best can it fit? Because we don't want all the charities of Ireland not filling in the register and ending up out of compliance in November. We want to find the best way to make sense of this for you. So we think the best way is by reference to your members. If there are less than three your members, under these rules, don't have ownership, but they do have control, and the holding of control by the small number of members is enough to cl- put them into this definition of a beneficial owner. So, at this point, I'm sure you're all wondering, what about my seven uh, members? Because most charities have at least seven; some have six thousand. Uh, so, we, we have everything from the from the three. Up, right up for the membership type charities uh, where they have a huge number of members. So it is the case I believe that in a majority uh, of situations no natural person, no human will control a sufficient percentage of the interest to be listed as the beneficial owner and in that case we have to say well what, what do you do? Nobody meets the, the, the definition. Does that mean you're out of it? Uh, unfortunately it doesn't mean you're out of it. regulations, the 2019 regulations, which reproduce the provisions of the Anti-Money Laundering Directive, tell you what to do if you don't have any ownership interest or control interest exercised by your members, Um, and that's where the definition of your senior managing officials becomes relevant. So. You have to decide that you have not been able to identify any owners on the control test, having exhausted all possible means. Very easy for you to exhaust those means if you know fine well you have more than three members. Um, and, and the no grounds for suspicion, that, you know, that's not for you guys. <laughs> uh, that is for those corporates which are in complex structures where there are potentially nefarious characters hiding. Um, so you enter the details of your senior managing officials on your register. So again I can see very clearly why this could cause confusion because what you're saying is that your senior managing officials fall in the definition in the regulations of beneficial owner. So I think we have to take a step back as as charity advisors and as charities from what we understood to be beneficial owner because if I stood up here and said, you know, your board of directors beneficially own your charity, clearly incorrect. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that within this very particular definition for this set of rules the definition of beneficial owner is very broad um, and every charity has an obligation to find somebody who fits into that category and if you have more than three CLG members the people who fit into that category are senior managing officials and it's not all bad because you get to explain yourselves and I'm going to come along to that. So just to stay with who are your senior managing officials for a moment. Every charity will have them. The definition in the regulations is not exhaustive. So what that means is that they're not saying it must be your board of directors. They say that the senior managing officials includes a director and the CEO. So what you need to do is you need to take a look at how your charity organises itself and runs and you need to decide, actually, who are the senior managing officials here in this charity? And there may be cases, um, perhaps not in the typical commoner garden charity, but many of you are are not the average charity. You might find, actually, that your chief financial officer has been in situ for 30 years and is really running the organisation, and that you would feel she or he fits within the definition of senior managing official. So I suppose the point to take away on that is that you're not bound, you are not forced to write uh, just your board of directors and your CEO. You may, if you feel it's correct, add another person or persons to that list, but the starting point is your board of directors and your CEO. And I would have thought in reality in 90% of cases it is simply those names that will go down. So this is what your beneficial ownership register, the internal one, will look like, something like this. Each person that's classified as a beneficial owner, special definition in these regulations, will get a page and on that page you will add in a few key details. And the detail I really want to bring you to here is the second to last column on the table, nature and extent of the interest held or the control exercised. Because uh, in our view at MHC, this is the place where you get to explain, uh, be it to the public or to the registrar, um, what actual interests do these individuals have. So you're not going to write down uh, Alice Murphy, chairperson of the board, beneficial owner of a quarter of the charity. Doesn't make sense. So this is your opportunity. And we regard this as the good news, I suppose, of this talk. Uh, This is your opportunity to give a flavour or an explanation as to why you have listed each person. Um, So you can confirm, I I think, that that the person is not the owner and that no owner can be identified because this company is charitable in nature. (coughs) The next slide just gives you that list again of the key details. So its name, date of birth, nationality, residential address, nature and extent of the interest. You'll be very familiar with this from the CRO and in most cases you probably have this information on file already for your directors. One very important piece of additional information that you may not have on the record for your directors and for your CEO, there is an obligation in these regulations to obtain the PPS number of each beneficial owner. I should say that that's an obligation obtain the PPS if they have one. So Maureen is going to talk a little more about um, instances perhaps where you have directors from other jurisdictions that may or may not be um, holding a PPS number. But for those who have one it's a new obligation. You are obliged as each charitable company to collect those PPS numbers. You are not obliged to put them on your own internal beneficial ownership register. So when we went back to the sample You didn't see a field where you're recording PPS in your register. You're not recording it in your internal register. You have to enter it into the external register, and I'll let Maureen explain more about that. It is for identity verification purposes. Um, That is why the legislature, in its wisdom, decided that they needed to make sure that Alice is who she says she is, Um, and that the most efficient way to do that was by reference to the social welfare system and database which contains all of our PPS numbers. This is a controversial one, I think we should name it as such. Uh, People weren't very happy with this um, and uh, therefore uh, I think it'll probably merit more discussion in the Q&A. So that brings to an end the substantive uh, obligations that I wanted to talk about this morning. I'm going to bring you through on a very whistle stop basis um, some of the more procedural items, just so that you have them. And in your packs this morning, you have more information on all of these procedural type obligations, because they might arise for you or they may never arise. The first is that there are some instances in which you, as a charitable company, have to send out notices. When you read through these, you'll think, oh, there, you know, they'd be more for the big for profits, but you never know. Um, there may be instances where you have to send a notice to a person because you think that they're the beneficial owner and there's a bit of doubt. Um, send, uh, you may also need to send a notice to a person who has reasonable cause to believe that they know who the beneficial owner of your charity is. And under the Regulation 11, the third one, uh, that you have to send that where you understand or have reasonable cause to believe that there's been a change. So those are in place because, as you could can imagine, where there's a lot of doubt or uh, concern about who the actual ultimate owners of a large multinational are, there may be several steps to be followed to get to clarity. You are obliged to, uh, as a beneficial owner, this is on the other side, to tell the company that you are the beneficial owner, um, or that your particulars have changed, maybe that you're no longer. Um, for example, on the board, Um, these obligations only arise where you don't think that the company knows anyway. So again, uh, from what I know of my own clients, quite unlikely everybody will know if a director leaves or if a new director joins. There shouldn't be uncertainty on that. Uh, The second last piece of procedural information is about access rights. Um, You might quite rightly uh, wonder who can ask you. So we're still in the realm, remember, of your internal beneficial ownership register. Maureen will talk about access to the central register. There are a suite of people who are allowed access to your beneficial ownership register. And when you see the list there, first list involves state actors. The second list involves regulatory authorities like the central bank and the law society. And the third list involves um, auditors, accountants, uh, law firms, those bodies who are regulated who may need to verify your identity. So they're the three categories of people who have access or who have a right of access to your register. And I think it's clear straight away these rights of access are solely focused on rooting out money laundering and rooting out terrorist financing. And um, so again, we really hope that none of you will be uh, in that uh, realm at all um, but one never knows and so we put them on the slide and as I say, in more detail in your packs when a right of access might arise. Uh, the occasional transaction right of access. That's the one you're most likely to come um, into, uh, into contact with because you will have been asked, for example, by Mason, Hayes and Kern or by your auditors to verify the identity of two of your directors and the occasional transaction is seeking legal advice or procuring auditing services. My very last two slides that I'm going to entirely skip over because I'm being told I'm out of time, and in any case, we really, really hope these won't be applying, are the offences. So I just have one point to make here, uh, and that is that as we sit here today, the obligation is already in force for each of you in your companies to have back at the office your internal beneficial register. So you need, uh, if you don't have it in place, Um, to go back as quickly as you can really um, and to make sure that you have put in place a document either on your computer or in hard copy which meets the requirements of a beneficial ownership register Um, and again just for total clarity these are the offences should you uh, be unable to do so so uh, again we don't think that's going to happen Uh, but for those of you who don't have the internal register I would certainly encourage you to get that in order just as quickly as you can And that's the end of my talk. I'll hand over to Maureen for the Central Register.
3: Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm very happy to have been asked uh, just to talk to you again today to try and get through, I suppose, the, the nuts and bolts of what's going to happen when the Register opens. And uh, as, as we, we keep joking about how the title of this really trips off the tongue, that's actually a shortened version of the name. The name is the Central Register of Beneficial Ownership of Companies and Industrial and Providence Societies. So we don't use that at all. We call it RBO, which is Register of Beneficial Ownership. And that's why we have the RBO there. So uh, as we've all uh, been discussing already and heard, the um, regulations, Uh, provide that this uh, central register will be established on the 22nd of June. That's uh, three months after the date that the regulations were signed. And after the the register opens, relevant entities, and we've covered that already with Alice, will have a five-month period in which to file information with the register. And any newly incorporated entities will also have five months from the date of their incorporation or registration to file. So as far as our register is concerned, uh, it is limited to companies that are registered under the Companies Acts and Industrial and Providence Societies that are registered under the Industrial and Providence Societies Acts. And so they would be co-ops. And I think a lot of co-ops would have similar concerns to companies limited by guarantee uh, and charities and that they would be around not having shareholders, not having... You know, defined owners, so to speak. So the issues that you have are, are slightly broader, I think, than, you know, than your own sector. Um, and for instance, there are a group of companies, uh, people like, say, apartment uh, owners, you know, who have a company to manage an apartment block, they're usually CLGs as well, and they're also facing the exact same issues that you're facing. And we'll probably deal with them in the exact same way. So the information that has to be filed with the central register, will uh, we've looked through it already there, the name, date of birth, and nationality, and residential address of each beneficial owner, and then a statement of the nature and the extent of the interest that they hold or the control that they exercise. And then the name and number of the entity as we have it on the CRO (coughs) register or on the Industrial and Providence Society's register. And again, the PPS number of each beneficial owner to whom such an owner has been assigned, or a number, other. So that means if you don't have a PPS, there is a different procedure to be put in place for that. Uh, And unfortunately, I haven't totally finalized the different procedure, but uh, we'll no doubt be discussing that in the Q&A. Any changes in your beneficial ownership uh, must be notified to the register Within 14 days, and I know that particularly affects—I uh, would Im- imagine—in in my own experience of charities and CLGs, you know, you have—you might have—you uh, know—every year at the AGM, some people will leave the committee or the board, and some people will come on, and so that change will have to be notified within 14 days. So it's one of the the tasks that will have mm-hmm. to be done. I think very shortly after any change or after the AGM. Now, this is probably not terribly clear, but this is an idea of what the, the page is going to look like, just to tell you that filing will be electronic. It will be free. And these are... This is when you go into our system. Uh, we It will be done through a portal. That this is how you'll be... You'll be just... For each beneficial owner, you'll be putting in the name of the person, the personal details, uh, and... Um, all the various sort of issues there. Now I see it, I know it's not clear but it will be better when it's, uh, when you see it on the portal. And then the details of the interest. So again this is where you'll be working your way down from shares, voting rights, and all of these apply. We have 220,000 companies on the register, on the company's register. There's only about 20,000 CLGs and only a portion of those are charities. So you know, for the vast number of companies, this is going to be relevant. I understand it's not relevant to yourselves, and you'll probably get down to the Senior Managing Official button there and hit that, and then put in. uh, That would be the nature and extent of the control that the individuals are exercising. So again, now, actually, it says the register will open for filing. That's Saturday. I'm reluctant to open it on a Saturday when there won't be IT support available. (laughs) So it won't be Saturday, right? but it will be soon after that. And uh, we have a website which I'll talk about again in a moment. Filing, as I said, will be by electronic means only through a portal that you can reach via our website. It will be free to file. It will be free to make any changes that you need to make. And uh, information can be filed on an entity's behalf by a presenter. So Legally it's coming from the company, but it can be done by an agent on behalf of the entity themselves. And then there is certain information where a presenter is filing that the presenter has to give to us and that's set out in the regulations. And then any information on the register will be destroyed ten years after the dissolution of the relevant entity. So it won't be kept on forever, but it obviously has to be kept for a particular period. So um, I suppose for companies limited by guarantee, which includes charities, we recognise you're unlikely to have uh, persons who will have, say, a sufficient percentage of voting rights or any ownership interest in the CLG. So then you have to decide what natural persons control the company and enter those details in the register, in both your own internal register and in the RBO register. And again... This will probably bring you down through the, the hoops and steps that Alice mentioned to your senior managing officials. This register is going to be uh, made public. Um, it, uh, there's going to be two tiers of access. The first tier of access is unrestricted access. And that will be to, um, obviously, state uh, bodies like the Gardaí, um, the Fraud Investigation Unit, the Revenue Commissioners, and the Criminal Assets Bureau. And then competent authorities uh, engaged in the prevention, detection, or investigation of possible money laundering, and inspectors appointed under a particular section of the Companies Act. The competent authorities, uh, that's quite a broad definition, so that's going to cover people like the Law Society, as you mentioned, accountancy, uh, supervisory bodies, etc. Just to note there that even though it's unrestricted access, PPSN details will not be available to anybody. We won't even be storing it in a way where we can revisit them ourselves. And we'll talk about that again, I think, when, um, uh, in, the, in the Q&A. Restricted access, then, will be available to um, a designated person forming a business relationship. So this is customer due diligence and members of the public. And for those people, there'll be a fee to access the register. And the restricted access um, is kind of restricted in two ways. For one thing, you can only search by company. You can't put in a person's name and say, I wonder how many companies Maureen O'Sullivan is the beneficial owner of? You know That would be great, interesting to find that out. Not possible. But So your starting point will be, I want to know who the beneficial owner of x company is. And you'll search for that company and you'll see the, what's on the register. So what you'll actually see will be um, the name, month, and year of birth of the co- of the person, not the date, and the country of residence and the nationality of each beneficial owner, but not their address. And then a statement of the nature and extent of their interest. So it'll say you know, they own 50% of the shares, or they have Control of a certain amount of voting rights, or in your case, there is senior managing official. And um, then, in some cases, there will be—I I doubt it will apply to yourselves—but in some companies, there will be situations where a beneficial owner is a minor person under 18, and the regulations give the registrar the discretion to decide whether to release that information because obviously it relates to a child. And um, but I don't think that is anything you will need to worry about. We talked earlier about, um, or at least Alice talked about, the different people who can access your internal register and our register. So it it may be the case that somebody might come to the conclusion that there's a discrepancy between what you have on your internal register and what you filed with ourselves. They They then have to report that to us. And then we then may note on the register that there's been a discrepancy reported. But we definitely must notify the entity itself and say give them an opportunity to respond and explain. It might have been oversight, it might actually not be a discrepancy at all, really, you know, just to respond and then we would deal with that. If they don't respond, it's an offence. So speaking of offences, so there will be a five-month period to file. So the um, and just in case uh, you know, we've been using 22nd of June, 22nd of November. I've indicated that you know we're not going to open it on Saturday. The regulations actually say it's five months from the opening. So it you know it won't be a case of opening on Monday and saying well you still have to file by the 22nd of November. It'll be whatever five months is after that. And um, after that, then, you'll be in breach of these regulations. And there's a number of um, offences that are listed in the regulations, but the main ones, I suppose, uh, apparently the registrar has power to prosecute all of them, but the ones we're mainly concerned with is to do with filing and non-filing. So, for instance, if a company or a co-op registers as a new company, say, in August, and hasn't filed with us by January on the RBO side, we'll know that, that's, that they're in breach. And, uh, and then we can decide what we're going to do about that. So that's basically that part. of we hope we won't be doing too much of that. So we've been trying to do some awareness raising. And this talk today and, and previous talks are part of that. Um, Well, actually, the the website did go live. I thought I had changed this, but anyway. And it is updated uh, regularly. We've got an FAQ section, and that's the means by which you can register on the portal to file. Uh, We have accounts on Twitter and LinkedIn, and they're updated very regularly. And we are going to contact every individual entity, either by email or by letter. So in the case of charities who are companies, it will be by email because we have email addresses for you all. The people who will get a letter will be the co-ops, because they're only recently gone electronic in the Registry of Friendly Societies, which is a sister organisation of the CRO. And so we don't have email addresses for all of those, so we have to write to them. But we'll be emailing on the email address that you've all given you know, with your other filings. And so this is what the just a screenshot of the website basically that we have at the moment and so you just go into that then and look at maybe frequently asked questions or contact us so you can see the tabs there across across the top so here we go any questions and if you'll excuse me I'll, I'll sit down over there and uh, be happy to to deal with any questions that you have thank you or to attempt to
0: Maureen, Alice, and Tony. Uh, while well, I was listening there, I just did a really quick little note um, by way of summary, I think, of what people were, each of the speakers were talking about. So I might just run down through it. Um, Tony spoke about the concept of beneficial ownership in charities and the fact that that really doesn't sit lightly with charities because, if say, for instance, I um, am a director in a charity and very much we all consider when we're sitting around the boardroom table that we hold the assets in trust for the beneficial users of the charity um, in in accordance with our charitable purpose. So none of us think sitting around the table that we own the assets at all. Um, Tony also touched on the burden of compliance. Alice then made it clear while the regulations were not written with charities in mind, Um, She, if you like, helped us determine how to implement them in a charitable sense. And that's what I talk about when you're sitting around the boardroom of a charity. How do you look around and decide who do we put on this sheet? Who do we put on the form? And Alice spoke about your beneficial owners and in particular those who control Who controls things. If you have three or fewer then you are in one position, if you have more than three people then you are in another position and you are talking about giving the names of your senior managing officials. It is quite straightforward if you try and think it as simply as that and I think if we all go home with that it is enough for us to know about. Maureen then very very well gave us the details about what will be on the um, website of the CRO um, when the register opens on the 22nd of June or the working day is soon thereafter. And then that we will all have five months within which to file the information with the ORBO. And it was helpful to see what type of information will be um, required. Enforcement, awareness raising, which is really good, and frequently asked questions. So, I mean, that's really just bringing it down to the nuts and bolts of it. When I think of it practically, I... Um, uh, I just think very many charities have lots of quite you know detailed financial transactions constantly going on. Um, there's constantly cash coming in from all unusual places. If you're an international charity, you have different currencies coming in. Um, you have maybe state donations and grants etc. coming in. You have corporates who are donating. Um, money is a big thing with charities. Most of us you know, exist because we get donations. And when I think about that, and then I think about what these regulations are for, to combat money laundering and terrorist financing. And when you think of it like this practically, as I do, I kind of think, well, yes, it's a bit awkward trying to fit us into that square hole, if you like. But at the same time, if one thing went wrong with any one of our charities, in relation to money laundering, terrorist financing, and we had tried to negotiate ourselves out of this, the impact it would have on the trust that the community in general would have for all of our charities. Because as we all know, once there's one scandal, it impacts on every charity. So I'm just thinking about this very practically. While it is, yes, another thing to comply with, I think it's worthwhile. I think if we can all do this together and keep it as simple as what Alice and Maureen have pointed out, well, then we're not going to trip ourselves up by saying, and they never complied with this. I also think we've got so much better with governance, with transparency. We want to be out there with you know, good sets of accounts, showing everything that we are doing. This year we are all meant to be getting ready for the Charities Regulatory Authority new Governance Code so that we can all confirm that we have signed up to it in 2020. I would just suggest that this is an extra thing that you would nearly add to that so that when you are sitting at your boardroom table and you are talking about the Governance Code there will be extra things. If you are a Section 38 hospital you have lots of extra things because of your annual compliance statement (coughs) etc. But as a company you have extra things to do on top of your charity's regulatory um, authority governance code and this is one of them and just treat it like that is my own view i'm being simplistic but i think it's the only way to do it Um, so after my simplistic view on it um, which i hope is somewhat helpful to try and make it abc i'd love to take any questions and i'll just mention as well nick metcalf one of our Partners in our corporate and com- governance and compliance unit is here, and Nick is advising all of our corporate non-charity clients on these regulations. And um, so we might uh, toss the difficult questions to Nick. Um, yes. Um, a very big thank you to our three speakers, Maureen O'Sullivan, Alice Murphy, and Tony. Uh, Many thanks to the Wheel for um, asking their members along. And again, if anybody would like to give me their card, if you'd like to receive our e-zines and invitations, I'd be delighted to receive it. Thank you all and have a good day.